Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they're doing. You may be asking yourself why. Why is Collisions YYC partnering with IJM? Well, because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest of you, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing I should be worrying about? For me, up to six months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. And then it gave me hope. It is the support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of ending slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. This is not a conversation that we want to have. It's a conversation that we must have. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. This is a fight we all need to take on, and we need to take it on today. Hello and a warm Collisions YYC welcome to a very special episode of the show. I'd like to welcome Mr. Philip Calvert to the show. How are you, Philip? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. I'm very excited and very honored to have you on as a guest today to talk about. I'm going to give my audience a little bit of a, you know, a, a pre a, a pre uh, clearing that this is a little bit of a different episode. Our typical episodes focus on economic transformation in Western Canada and all of the different and amazing things that are going on in our province and in the last year, year and a half, I came into contact with an organization called IJM, International Justice Mission, and became aware of, of, of something that I think I wouldn't say that I wasn't aware of, but I never brought it home. I never thought it about of something that happened in our own environment. And as, as organizations, as business leaders, we have the opportunity to create change and to contribute and support. So I think it's very important, especially now more than ever, to really identify some of the initiatives out there that need our support as organizations. And when I met IJM and I met Philip, it really was a story that I believe that needed to be told and you know, had the opportunity to have an audience and a platform to tell that story. So with that as a precursor, Philip, maybe give us a little bit of a, of a, of a backstory. What, what is IJM and what is the work that you guys do? Yeah, uh, th- thanks for that, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled even just hearing you say that. But um, So International Justice Mission uh, is the world's largest anti-slavery organization. And uh, we were founded in 1997 by a, a human rights lawyer. His name's Gary. Um, he was uh, basically seconded by the UN uh, away from the U.S. Department of State, uh, where he was working there, uh, to basically kind of lead the uh, forensic investigations into the aftermath of the uh, genocide in Rwanda. And so uh, he had this pretty powerful kind of experience, as you can imagine, where he's uh, standing over mass graves. And uh, what strikes him is that uh, he, sometimes he'll be standing in a mass grave that's in a community resource center type of place. And... Um, uh, he kind of has this epiphany moment where people that are needing development in their economy, for example, are are not, in this very tangible, very real case, not needing a community resource center or a school or a well or a microloan or anything like that. What they needed was someone to literally hold the hand back of the person holding the machete. And um, it, it it's, a, it's a really interesting story, just even listening, talking to him about his interaction with uh, General Dallaire uh, from the mm-hmm. U- or from Acadian military, uh, who you know 
famous book or famous saying, shaking hands with the devil, right? Like just, we, we knew it was coming and chose not to do anything about it. And um, so his, his kind of light bulb moment, which caused our organization to start was how do we look at something like that, identify violence, lawlessness in a society, and really start to build systems around it to make it more effective and actually protect the people it's supposed to protect, which are you know quite often those that are in poverty or experiencing um, poverty to some, de- some degree that need protection because they can't buy it like uh, maybe a, a wealthy corporation that's doing foreign business can. And so um, that's, that's kind of our, our epicenter of where we started. And uh, it really started in kind of some uh, anti-sex trafficking kind of projects in, in Rwanda and uh, in Cambodia. Uh, but since then, it's really grown uh, to the point of where we're over uh, 25 field offices around the world now and focusing on all kinds of various issues like bonded labor, slavery, cross-border trafficking for migrant workers, um, especially in like open sea environments, uh, violence against women and children, police abuse of power, um, cross-border trafficking, uh, even in Europe now, and so it's it's a it's a very diverse and wide kind of reaching organization that has this kind of epicenter of uh, kind of our, our twenty thirty vision is to protect five hundred million people uh, from violence in the first place. Going back to that epicenter of how do we systematize holding that hand back of someone that would hurt, that would hurt somebody else given the opportunity. Wow, that's a that that is a large undertaking when you think of the scope and scale of of, of this problem. Just give me, you know, being very transparent in terms of my newness to understanding this topic and really grasping it in a way that's tangible and in a way that's action oriented, which is my you know my always DNA. It's great to know about something, but how can we actually get involved? When I think about that transition from 1997 to 25 field offices around the world, was there anyone doing this type of work on the scale that IGM is now operating at, or was this typically more regionalized? in the areas where some of these, these, these transgressions are happening. Uh, and then you run into the, the, the culture, the, the, like you said, the lawlessness and sometimes the, the economic, uh, disproportionate economic realities of a lot of those countries. When I'm just thinking about from 1997 to now, how much evolution and how many inroads a company like IGM, an organization, I should say, like IGM would have to make, are you partnering with local you know, authorities or is this something where you really had to go in and forge that path? <laughs> that's a uh, that's a group of great questions. Um, I would say that uh, so a starting point there is uh, the World Bank, right? A massive kind of organization around the world. Um, they did a, a study, uh, quite I want to say it's like two thousand two somewhere in that range. Um, that was called Voices of the Poor, and basically their big question that they went around. They interviewed tens of thousands of people that were experiencing poverty and kind of like the the uh, ultra poverty kind of demographic around the world and ask them, you know, what is your biggest fear? And uh, kind of the the researchers were expecting to hear things like um, access to clean water, access to education, uh, those types of things that you would kind of expect to hear in the development space. And uh, overwhelmingly, the number one response that came back was the immediate threat of violence. And uh, which tells you kind of how big of a vacuum there actually is for that work around the world. Um, IJM is really a pioneering organization in the space because historically the posture has been, well, in order to actually do that kind of work, you have to like solve this problem called corruption. And that's way too expensive. It's way too complicated. That's way too hard. So let's not do that. And um, let's focus on things that we can control and, uh, 
kind of own the narrative around how we can actually do those things. And um, so, again, going back to Gary's kind of initial epicenter of his aha moment, uh, his kind of posture to that was, that's not okay, that's not enough. Um, I mean, he he had a great TED Talk where he kind of explains it, where he says that um, if you're on a university campus in Canada, let's say, say you're at the U of C or something, and um, there's uh, a girl that uh, gets assaulted walking from the dorm to the library. Um, the historic uh, kind of response to that type of scenario of uh, the, the equal situation of being a girl going to get water at a well uh, outside of a rural village. Um, if the response that's always been kind of seen in the international development community is, well, let's move the well closer to the town because then you limit the amount of time for that kind of thing to happen. And um, so if, if, the, if the comparable response is, let's move the library closer to the dorm, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, let's be that really puts it in context. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's that kind of thought process that really has guided uh, kind of IGM's approach. And uh, so our approach has actually been, if you want to go after corruption, you have to actually work with the people that you want to work with, right? You have to work with those systems to overcome those types of things. And so we found that uh, in order for us to actually even be successful is that we actually work everywhere we work with is always in collaboration with the local justice system. Um, whether it's a rescue, it's in collaboration with local police. If it's aftercare, it's in collaboration with the uh, social work apparatus. If it's securing convictions, it's, it's in collaboration with uh, the process. Uh, no, I can always mess up that word, but like the, the, the prosecuting attorneys, okay. right? Yep. So, you have to work with that. And then we do everything from like judicial trainings of like how to make sure the law is enforced the way that it's written uh, in the country that we're working. And um, so it, it's it's all those kinds of layers working together to understand that you can actually can, by proving a point of concept, by focusing on a very specific thing okay. within that justice system, show that if you focus on it, you can overcome some pretty significant challenges. So to really kind of sum it up for, for, for the listeners and even my own journey of understanding IGM, you guys are very, very hands-on. Like there's the, the, maybe you can talk about kind of who is on the IGM team because you guys are literally having missions where you are liberating and freeing people in bondage when you are dealing with sex trafficking, like on the ground and in a high risk, like potentially highly violent engagement. But then you're also working right through the legal system, like I said, to, to, to really permeate and try to create change in a legal framework that maybe is, like you said, it's not maybe probably corrupt and probably not being used to the best outcome of, of the population that it was intended to serve. So when you look at the team that is behind IGM, what, what kind of makes that feels like a really dynamic makeup of individuals to be able to execute on that right from one end, right to the boots on the ground, saving somebody from a bad situation. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite fun. Um, I, I got to say all the people that I've gotten to meet uh, around the world of like our 1200 or so staff, um, it's been just absolutely jaw dropping of the quality of people. But um, around the world, roughly 96% of our staff are local to the countries in which we're working, which is super important. <clears throat> um, and there's kind of four core capacities that makes up every field office. Uh, so number one is those investigators, right? So these are people that um, in most extreme kind of cases will like go undercover and pose to be a pedophile, for example, uh, in order to get kind of access into back rooms and massage parlors where the, where, where the children are held kind of thing um, that have like uh, secret body cameras and microphones, all that kind of stuff. So like really super intense work on that front. Um, so that's one capacity is the investigators. The second one is social workers. And so uh, a lot of what we do is kind of overseeing kind of the social work 
uh, a kind of apparatus that's around uh, a justice system and kind of uh, holding them to minimum standards of care, those kinds of things. Um, and then the third one is community advocates. So uh, public speakers, um, uh, people that work in uh, advocacy with local government, uh, those kinds of things. And the number four is uh, that legal arm, right? So a lot of lawyers uh, that are working within the justice system itself, supporting attorneys, uh, working on prosecutions, writing legal briefs, all those kinds of things, just to support a, a case through uh, completion. That makes sense. It's a lot of there's a lot of de there's a lot of moving parts in a situation like that. When you move, when when you are entering into a new community or an area, or that you even you're established there, I'm always curious to understand. Like you're also changing something that has been systemic to those environments for arguably long, long per periods of time. I guess I'm curious around the work you do to try to change the belief or even giving hope to the people in those communities that change is actually possible because hope is the first step in a lot of this journey to even believe that we can create change, that you can have impact. I'm assuming that's a huge part of the hearts and minds of teaching people that they don't have. There's an alternative to being victimized when you've been in a world where being a victim was part of, like you said, the number one fear that comes up when you ask the question, not, not water, not food, not a place to sleep. Am I going to be a victim of violence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, a great example of that, I would say, is um, issues like land rights in um, kind of the Great Lake regions of Africa, right? So uh, a big part of our work there is that um, uh, quite often you'll have widows that uh, uh, have property, right? So maybe their, their husband has uh, passed away because of some illness uh, or has moved on uh, for one way or another. And then there's a like big cultural kind of longstanding beliefs around things like uh, women shouldn't be able to hold property. And so it's the next of kin of the uh, husband that's passed away or even moved on that it now owns that property, including the woman. And um, that's just not true under the law there, though, right? And so uh, there's been significant barriers to trying to overcome that kind of cultural belief. And it, it, it turns out to be like crazy violent at times where we've had cases where uh, kind of mobs have formed where they try to cave in a house around uh, a widow and her children uh, while they're sleeping in order to just kind of get the roadblock out of the way if they want it, they want that land or whatever, or, or try to burn the house down with them inside it, those kinds of things. And um, so one of the like massive barriers exists there for a woman in that situation, right? So she would have to maybe go to Kampala or Gulu uh, in order to actually file a legal claim. And in order to do that, she might have to pay off uh, a corrupt clerk in order to actually even get to land title. Um, but also if she leaves, then she may not be coming back to anything. And so uh, one of the initiatives that we pioneered there is uh, we actually have mobile courtrooms that where we take the court itself to the rural area where a lot of these houses are and um, have it as a legally binding uh, arrangement where the, the deed of title is there. Um, and it's kind of just there in the community and it's public, right? So that's, that gets to that kind of cultural dynamic. Um, you know, there's tons of other examples I can point to of just like community advocates mm -hmm. working all over the world, doing all kinds of things like that. But it's, um, it's, it's, <laughs> that's a short question that has a whole bunch of nuance and conversation around it because Appreciate it involves that. multiple different cultures around the world. It's never as simple. It's, it's amazing when you put, when I say we, I'm going to say I, when I put my North American filter on it and I feel that I have a degree of protection from that type of, of, of even if my neighbor thought that they should have my house, I have 
a police force. I have a, a, a structure, an ecosystem, a, a way of working that protects me. That I believe that, and that's part of my tax dollars, and it's part of the world that I contribute to. And you said something earlier on, the word lawlessness, and that's a really interesting. You know, as I've been reading through um, Gary's book, The Locus Effect, which I would encourage anybody to take a read if you want to really kind of open your eyes to to kind of this situation and not only what's happening, but how you can how can, how we can have impact. But you think about you know if you can't afford to pay for security and your own you know, law enforcement that, you know, for hire, there's no one there to protect you in a situation like that. When you talk about a, a village coming together because their beliefs are stronger than the rights of that individual, because that those rights, they're not even on the radar, but there's no third party to intervene outside of some of the work that you guys are trying to do. I think that's just something as North Americans, as a North American, it's, I get, I can wrap my head around it intellectually. It's just so far from the world that I live in. It's just, it's, it, it, it makes you, Makes you feel queasy even to think about people being in that environment and having no one to protect them like we do here that we take for granted. Yeah, it's it one way that I found kind of helpful to wrap my head around that because you know I have the same presuppositions, right? Like living here in Calgary, um, you know, I I can walk down the road and I don't feel threatened, or you know, if I even get into a car accident, for example, right? I know the process around how to actually solve that problem. Um, what I've found helpful to wrap my head around it is. Uh, I assume our justice system to be something that's just there um, versus a fee for service, hmm. right? And for a lot of people that are especially, it's cruel, but a lot of people that especially living in poverty, in order to get access to that justice system, the very system that's supposed to protect people who are poor in the first place, are forced to view it as a fee for service type of thing. And uh, because quite often kind of the, the way that corruption causes things to work is that it's, been, it's built to protect those that have influence versus those that don't have influence. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very, very foreign to kind of my lived experience. And it's, uh, it's something that, yeah, it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking, but also very interesting to think about it as a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, you know, fee, fee for service, rich versus poor, that seems, you know, that's clearly the dialogue that sounds like it runs through all of this. So when you think about trying to shift global poverty, that's a big, that's a big lift. Like that's a very, very big topic that there's been a lot of research on and, and feels like we've definitely made headway on it, but yet it's still very existing. When you read some of the statistics and Gary lays them out in his book, of kinds of, you know, we are maybe, I think, moving in the right direction, but I think uh, never, never, never fast enough. Uh, Philip, maybe a little bit national director of development. You're, you're focused, you're in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to feel like everything we've just talked about is somewhere else. That's a way that happens overseas. That happens in other parts of the world, you know. And through meeting you and through having conversations, you've you brought some very uncomfortable realities. You certainly onto my radar about the fact that you know there's perpetrators of these crimes, there's perpetrators of these these atrocities that are based right here in Canada. Like this is not quote unquote, another a problem that's happening on the other side of the world. Unfortunately, due to our digital technology and our connectiveness, this is happening. This is happening everywhere. And I don't know, you, you brought some very stark realities to my attention that, yeah, are maybe uncomfortable to talk about, but we need to, because that's the only way we can fix it. Yeah. I, I mean, let's use human trafficking as a bucket of, to, of this conversation. Um, I've had it said to me by several of our investigators and different field office leaders around the world that any any uh, active in intervention that's meant to have some kind of a dent in human trafficking um, 
that does not include the digital dynamics of what human trafficking actually is should not be deemed serious. That it should be deemed as a bit of a hobby, if, if nothing else. That's interesting. And um, because uh, even if you're talking about brick and mortar type of trafficking, the communication, the payment schedule, how all that kind of stuff works is all in the digital space. But more to your point specifically, um, trafficking itself or how somebody is abused and how that person is sold across borders does not have to actually require the movement of that person anymore. Right? It can happen through a computer screen. It can happen through a cell phone. And uh, the way that money moves and flows these days makes it extremely easy, if someone knows what they're doing, of just basically abusing a child or another person around the world for a relatively low amount of money um, and just never even have to leave their own home, hmm. which is kind of terrifying. I remember a time traveling to Cambodia back probably 2012 and there was a sign on the door of the resort that we're staying at and it just, just made it very real to me. It was this very nice polished, like beautiful sign on this huge, like oversized red wooden door and you're a tourist. So everything you're absorbing it and sex traffic, you know, sex travelers, not welcome. And I was like, wow, that is very real. That wasn't a sign that someone temporarily put there. That was a very permanent addition. But what I'm hearing you say loud and clear, among the many benefits that we've got from our digital technologies, you don't have to travel to Cambodia anymore to be a pedophile who then takes advantage of children on the other side of the world. That's a very scary reality when you talk about the ability to scale a problem with with almost unchecked. From what, what I guess maybe to, to not end on a, to, to always, I always like to talk about where we're headed. You've brought to my attention, there's some very large organizations, which we may or may not be able to name, that are really getting involved in this because it is not, like if, if it's digital, there's a footprint somewhere and there's someone, someone with the right levels of, of access can mediate and can police that. And that's encouraging to me because I left unchecked, that almost feels like a, a, just a completely out of control problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, uh, maybe just to kind of like use some of the language that we use internally a lot, uh, maybe your listeners will uh, appreciate this is, um, when you say unchecked kind of in legal terms, a lot of, uh, kind of what the community means there is impunity. Okay. Right. So, um, when you have a crime that exists in complete impunity, uh, there's no reason for it not to happen. Mm, okay. Right. So the, the person who is uh, looking at actually abusing somebody else, if they know they're going to get away with it, they're, they're going to do it. And um, like, it's, it sounds like, well, of course, dummy. Um, but like, that's just the reality of. No, but I think we need to have these conversations because for someone who that's not even on their radar to do something like that, it seems like such a foreign, like it's hard to conceive when you're not, you're, you're not in that category and without the ability to help and, 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 help that individual not think that way, we've got to put, we've got to put barriers in place. We have to put consequences in place or mm -hmm. like you said, impunity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like to your, to your point about like corporations, even in Canada, they're getting involved in that game. Um, one thing that's really cool is that, uh, so we mentioned this kind of digital platform for trafficking, right? So the, the technical terminology there is uh, the online sexual exploitation of children. And um, so like that's basically Overwhelmingly, we find that it's um, uh, a mother or uh, some trusted adult in a child's life that has found that they can make relatively quick cash by basically selling their kid online to someone around the world who's willing to pay for it. And then that person who's paying for it is directing uh, the live stream abuse that they want to see. Right? So it's, it's a live interaction, typically like a, a video call type of thing with no recording. 
And so what, what makes that hard against that backdrop of impunity is how do you actually even know to what degree the crime is happening if there's relatively little evidence to even go after? And so um, the, the interesting thing, and like, I've been learning a ton uh, kind of since taking on this role of national director, like you mentioned, um, there's this, this project we have in our global kind of entity called um, uh, Scale of Harm. So er, 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 anybody who owns a business or is involved in running a business in some kind of leadership stake uh, understands that um, you, if you don't measure something, you probably aren't actually even doing it, right? Like why even do it if you're not going to measure it? And so that's one thing that uh, we're taking very seriously on this OSEC uh, issue. And uh, we've had... Uh, some really interesting partners come around the table on this, uh, we call it a scale of harm project. So it's all getting towards how do we actually measure the prevalence of a crime like OSEC through kind of even understanding how and to what degree is uh, child sexually explicit material even being made, right? And then how is it getting transferred and what data points can be collaborated in order to even understand how that's, how that's working. And so uh, from within Canada, it, within that global group, uh, from the financial sector, um, Scotiabank has been involved with that. And what's really great there is that they're able to leverage uh, some of their amazing initiatives that they've done even before getting involved with us at all. Uh, they have a, a project called Project Shadow in collaboration with FinTrack or the financial regulator that's already doing some of the stuff from, a, from a, just a, a purely private sector uh, financial securities kind of uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And they're able to kind of bring that expertise into this working group that also involves groups like, like uh, Microsoft and the Facebook and um, something called the Virtual Global Task Force, which is chaired by the RCMP. And so it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting project around how do we even identify the scale of a problem so that we can measure it so that any interventions that we do around that, we can actually point to it and say we're actually reducing impunity here. So, so interesting. So it st- still comes back to the ability to kind of fo- follow the money. If you want to use a, probably mm-hmm. something I've heard just in Hollywood or like on those kind of shows talking about, you know, if we can't get to the root of it, let's find out where the transaction is happening and where the funding is coming from and, and, and disrupt that or follow it to its source to be able to identify and, and change the behavior. So interesting when you think of that, and I know you and I had this conversation, you know, the, the concept of ESG and the concept of, you know, companies now mm-hmm. as, as individual organizations being held responsible for, everything that goes on in the way they execute their business, but also their supply chain. And you think about this on a global scale, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge for companies to then say, yes, we can be fully accountable to understand what's happening at our supply at one of our suppliers that happens to be in these countries where you, where you, you know, where these kind of issues and where slavery and things are, are much more prevalent that in North America just simply don't cross our minds unless we are intentional about thinking about that. So how are you seeing that world of ESG and the world of corporations taking on more responsibility to say, not on, like, not, not on my watch or not, not through my company? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting to see kind of how some companies like really have a um, a posture towards wanting to be a, a value based leader in a space uh, versus kind of having to solve something, right? So like maybe something comes out of like a burning platform moment where an article causes like shareholders to lose their mind or something. Um, it's it's uh, it's really encouraging kind of in my role of being able to talk to people that want to have that value-based leadership stance within corporate culture. And, um, you know, we're having a few of those kind of conversations that are emerging across Canada right now as these topics are becoming more topical. Mm -hmm. 
And as uh, ESG is continuing to develop and the sustainable development goals from the UN are starting to make their way more and more into kind of the, uh, the corporate kind of landscape, it's really interesting to see kind of who is having these conversations and why they're having the conversations as well. Um, and it's, it's also connected to kind of external factors and pressure that it's kind of levied on the, on the business community, right? And we all know that those things change really fast. And um, like I can point to one example specifically uh, from some of my colleagues in Australia that uh, ended up working with a rather large financial institution down there around the same problem of OSEC because they passed a new law down there, uh, I want to say four years ago now, that um, uh, basically uh, implicated the way that people actually pay for something like human trafficking as a supply chain issue. Interesting. And so then all of a sudden there's this this massive kind of fine structure that's associated with aiding and abetting human trafficking through a supply chain mechanism of a financial transaction. Hmm. And so that that becomes a big problem for a bank, right? And uh, so it it uh, it's interesting to see kind of how that conversation evolved and what it led to. And it's amazing. I mean, if you follow the rabbit trail, this thing that I mentioned earlier that, that Scotiabank is involved in now in some ways was initiated because of some funding that a financial institution in Australia gave because of how a law changed the business landscape down there for them. And so it's that interconnected thing can have global implications. So interesting. I love the concept of the, you know, just simply the burning platform versus value base. And there's like something is clearly as it stays is on fire and we need to fix it. And it's been brought to light. And okay, now all of a sudden we're on, we're on the hot seat as an org, as a board of directors or as a leadership team to take action versus value based. Have you seen any trends over the last, cause obviously the last 20 months we've had an interesting landscape as the world's changed. Have you seen more of a shift away from, you know, our burning platforms showing up more often because there's more optics and, and also on the same note, is, are you seeing, or are you encountering as IGM more value-based conversations with companies saying, okay, well, we don't have a burning platform, but we've seen them. We're aware of them. Let's get ahead of this. Let's, let's, let's do something that, you know, we can talk about purpose or we can actually live a purpose. Are we trending in the right direct quote unquote, right direction from your perspective? Yeah, from my perspective, I would say that we are okay. trending in the right direction um, because th there's been enough kind of high-profile examples mm -hmm. of some really big players that kind of everybody can look at and point at and say, I don't want to be that. Right. And um, so that, that value-based uh, perspective is really, really there. And uh, I would also say that there's a, there's a lot of learning that's happened kind of out of the uh, environment conversation, right? So going back to ESGs, uh, a lot of companies and corporations have focused uh, heavily on terms of like a carbon footprint mm -hmm. and kind of how they want to be seen, attracting investors, all that kind of thing. And um, as the ESG con conversation continues to mature, uh, what's becoming clearer and clearer is that uh, my decision around what I purchase is also um, has a, a governance and sustainability component to it as well. Right. So um, who made that shoe? Uh, what working conditions were they living in? How was that material uh, actually procured? And then I think importantly from a corporate perspective is uh, what influence does a corporation have in changing the scenario if that's a bad scenario, right. whether through their own business operations or through uh, vendor relationships or whatever the case might be. It's it becomes a really, really interesting conversation and uh, I'll say again, I feel like the conversation is trending in a, in a much more hopeful direction mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, five years ago, 
we weren't having these conversations at all. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas now we're having them on a fairly regular basis. From your perspective, and you, you made reference to it earlier, you know, we need water wells, we need schools, we need, you know, places, safe places to gather. We also need to stop violence and abuse of, of the, the disparity between rich and poor. We need to talk sexual, you know, online sexual exploitation of children. These are not comfortable topics to talk about for most of us. They shouldn't be. No. But is, has that has that also contributed to you know when I don't want to look at something, I tend to ignore it or I push it over there. And it, like, I'm just curious how how important it is for us to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations, so these things don't go unspoken about or. The, the, the girl walking to the well who suffers abuse, it doesn't just get pushed under the under the under the rug in her village because that's just you know we don't talk about those types of things right up to us as individuals in North American culture where we have the ability to contribute the way we run our organizations or the way we donate or we we use those excess funds we want to do to support. Just curious from your perspective, like how important or how much has it been an issue that 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 is an uncomfortable topic? Is that allowed it? Is that give it a chance to exist longer because maybe we're scared to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, like one of the things that you've uh, noticed, I'm sure, is that uh, um, th these conversations are difficult to have. And uh, one thing that, um, so I, I gave this this TEDx talk here in Calgary three years ago, and um, I, I, I used that as kind of the hook for the beginning of that conversation of uh, basically saying, like, if you ever find yourself at a dinner party and the conversation is kind of going sideways and the person just won't stop talking and you need to get out of it. If I happen to be there, just wave me over because I have a whole bank of stuff I can talk about <laughs> for sure. Make that person feel uncomfortable and move on. Um, and I remember that. Like yeah, your TED talk is great. I remember that part of it actually made me laugh. <laughs> made me smile. Uh, it made me smile. It's, <laughs> it, yeah, it's a bad joke, really, at the end of the day. But it gets the, po it gets um, the point across, Philip. <laughs> but I think that what it, what I was kind of going for there, and what uh, I've I've learned over time is that uh, when we have these kinds of conversations, if there's no outlet for resolution or for actual kind of actionable problem solving, it leads to two really strong emotions. Number one, anger. And number two, hopelessness. And so if, and hopelessness is just as bad as, as anything, but anger is even worse, I would say, because there's nowhere to actually put that anger. Right if you don't know what you're going to do with it. And so it ends up being hopeless at the end of the day as well. And um, so like that really, what I would say is has been hopeful in the narrative lately is that because it is becoming more topical and that people are starting to look at it more frequently, um, we're, we're getting to a point where a lot of creative minds are starting to think about it. Mm. And, and that is really important um, because these are big problems, like you said, and if all we ever do is get angry and yell at the sky about it, nothing's going to change. But if we actually get down and dirty and start like roll our sleeves up and start having the conversations, get smart, start measuring stuff, start having KPI, like it's it's amazing the difference that you can see. Um, and, and I think IJM in a way is a testament to that of 20 years in of doing this work, 20 plus years, that um, we have seen some really amazing change. And uh, there is no reason to be hopeless about it because we, we, we've seen it. We've seen change. I really, I really appreciate the concept of anger because it feels, it feels like you're getting, you're reacting the way you should in the moment, but ultimately if it doesn't have an outlet, what value does it create? Where hope is a completely different feeling in a different sense. With that in mind, mm -hmm. how does, you know, 
how does an individual, because we've got an audience, our audience is very active and very engaged. They're listening. They want to learn more. They want to get involved. They want to bring their organizations to the table. I'm, I'm assuming there's always the avenue of donation, but maybe tell us a little bit about how someone, how an individual can say, I want to get involved because I want to create hope and I want it to learn more. But also I do appreciate, do you work with organizations to help give them some guidance of how to get involved in this conversation? Because it's often we don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there. Um, Number one, if you want to get involved with this fight, what I always say is that is that take some time, have some conversations, get to know the landscape a little bit. Because uh, the history of this kind of fight against slavery is riddled with people that are completely burnt out and jaded um, because they, they haven't taken the time to actually do an inventory and understand kind of what is my unique stake or what is the thing that I can bring as value. And so now what I, what I would encourage people to do is even just, just LinkedIn – me and just let's start having a conversation because what I would love to learn is uh, kind of what is your unique thing that you're bringing to the table? What, what is your product? What is your service? What is, what is the thing that you work on? And is there a connection point? And there's no shame either in saying that, well, maybe it just, it's not quite like a tangible thing that I can try to figure out and lend my voice or my expertise into this problem. That's fine. It is a fairly specific landscape, right? Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, um, donations actually do really matter um, because we have technical staff that need technical training in order to do technical jobs. And so, um, yeah, th- like that that's one thing I'll just throw out there. But uh, beyond that, I would say the conversation is really great. And also getting involved kind of from a that entry-level kind of campaign awareness uh, kind of level there's, there's a really fun initiative. Um, that, like this is one thing I value about IJM as, a, as an aside. The stuff that we work on, super heavy, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Um, th- the way we go about doing it is actually quite fun. That's, that's, that's an interesting wanna, contrast <laughs> just to put those two side by side. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like we, like the, the whole like anger and hopelessness thing, right? Like how can we lean towards hope, right? It's, you got to laugh. You got to have fun. You got to enjoy doing it together. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you just become a jaded old man. Um, but <laughs> nobody the, wants that. <laughs> no. And uh, uh, so, this is a campaign that we have uh, every year. There's a foundation that's actually started in, in, in California, but uh, in Canada, um, IJM is the exclusive beneficiary of this campaign every year called uh, Drisember. Right. So, don't look it up in a dictionary; it's not a word. But but it, it, it um, is a website, so you can absolutely look it up online. <laughs> it <is a> <laughs> um, basically, the idea is that. Uh, these two friends in Northern California, they came up with this brilliant idea of uh, there's so many women around the world that have no choices whatsoever, right? And so let's restrict our choices for the month of December and do nothing but wear a dress. And so um, kind of that standing in solidarity with those that you'll never meet kind of idea. And so across Canada, there's hundreds of advocates that join up every year that uh, for women that wear dresses every day, and for men, I did it last year, I'll do it again this year, of wear a tie every day. It's kind of fun, right? Like I, I thought that was going to go somewhere different, Phil, but I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> but like within our current uh, kind of corporate, you know, working life, like how often do you wear a tie anymore? Kind of I haven't worn up. a tie for like 20 months, but that's another, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it causes the question mark, right? So like, what, why are you wearing a tie? Like you're working from home. Like who cares if you're wearing a tie or not? Um, it's, it, uh, kind of provides that on ramp for conversation and that I would say is key 
right? So going back to that TED Talk, going back to that kind of problem level, um, we don't talk about these issues. And then when we don't talk about them, we don't surface them. And when they're not surfaced, impunity is the default, not action. You can't fix a secret, right? The old joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that, bringing it. And it is a very serious topic and conversation. I even find myself being almost somber in, in this chat. But you're right. If you want to make it approachable, you have to make people feel safe. You have to encourage an, a, an environment where, no, no, this is a tough topic, but we're going to embrace it and we're going to love solving this problem. And we're going to lean in and find mm-hmm. some joy in, in the outcomes that we're creating on a, on a global stage. Uh, you made you made the comment about you really encourage people to lo- to learn more. And if anyone leaves this episode and is curious and wants to learn more, that would be a successful episode. So obviously, dressember.org, which you, which which you mentioned, and uh, you're right, it's not, but it does it's not a dictionary word, but it does come up right away. IGM.ca, you guys have a great website. It's very comprehensive about your programs and the impact that you have. Any other areas? Uh, the Locus Effect, which is a book that your founder wrote, which I've you you've uh, very graciously shared with me, and it's been uh, it can be a bit of a heavy read, but it does it gives you the foundation of what the problem actually is and allows you to understand it in a way that ma- makes it very real but offer but also offers hope to your point so anywhere else you would you would steward people uh to uh to gain a little bit more information and just to start to you know get comfortable talking about this th- this issue so that we can get comfortable helping solve it yeah um i would say just uh as a point uh if you go to December.ca versus org, oh, uh, just perfect. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I was, I, I went down yeah, the rabbit hole. It's fine. <laughs> totally fine. Um, just, just to make sure that it's, uh, you know, receipable for like a fundraising perspective within Canada. Appreciate that. Um, so, uh, there's that, uh, another kind of website that's kind of fun, uh, is tied to my Ted talk that I did is, uh, not on my screen.ca. Okay. And so like, that's a very simple campaign where it's, it's basically a, I call it a no-brainer pledge, where you, it's just a little tiny sticker that goes in the back of your phone that's just meant to kind of raise a conversation of saying, like, I refuse to do this kind of stuff on my screen um, and uh, invite people to have that conversation with you. Um, and uh, beyond that, again, I would say reach out on LinkedIn. Let's have a little bit of a conversation. Would love to kind of have that, uh, get into the weeds a little bit and have that nuance around what is the inventory. And uh, how can we use that inventory to kind of leverage it towards people you know, around the world uh, no longer being slavery or being sexually assaulted, those kinds of things. Philip, thank you so much for, the, you know, one, thank you for the, for the, work, you, for the work you do, because I know you've been with the organization for, I think, going on, on, six, on six years now. And really kudos to you and for the people on your 1,200, 1200 people worldwide. That's a, that's, a, that's, a real, that's a real number. Like that's, that's some impact that a group of people that are all focused on a, on a, on a, on a common goal can, can create. So I want to thank you for your candor today and in allowing me to kind of fumble my way through this conversation, which, you know, as, I, as I've come to it, feeling a little bit uncomfortable, but knowing that that was where I needed, needed to lean in and the, taking this opportunity to share what I find is a, something that needs to be talked about with, with, with our audience. So Philip, a huge thank you for your time today and uh, I look forward to keeping this conversation going. Awesome. Well, Tyler, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you.